So our communion meditation is from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And uh, this is the uh, fourth message, I think, in this series. Uh, the series I entitled Final Admonitions, and yet uh, today, I think, also I wanted to emphasize that while this is what Jesus uh, said to them in the, his final time together with his apostles, these disciples uh, devoted to him, uh, it certainly wasn't the first time they heard these things. Uh, he had been living this out for three years, and he had been modeling it for them, and he had been uh, preaching it to them. They were also present when he was often preaching to the religious leaders of his day, rebuking them in ways that are pertinent to what he's now sharing with them. And so our text is small. It's John 14, and I'll read from verses 7 to 11. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and it is beautiful that we can read the words of Christ here in English this day, and we pray that forevermore uh, everybody of all nations would be able to read uh, these wonderful words in their own language. Uh, we thank you so much, Father, for this privilege. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned that this is final admonitions, but it's also final reminders because he's already been talking about all this. And the text that I just read is a really small snippet that is meant to really remind them of much more elaborate uh, delving into this topic. And two of them are in practically the whole chapters of John 5 and John 10. And so we'll cover a little bit of that later. But first, I wanted to share with you that we only covered four verses. And then there is another three-verse section and then another five-verse section that cover Father, Son, and Spirit. And so because they were covering Father, Son, and Spirit, I thought maybe I should just join them together, have the very same message, cover it as the Trinity. But I thought, that's not what Jesus did. And so I really ought not. Uh, I believe he is emphasizing for the sake of his disciples the distinctions and the importance of identifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit separately. Yes, we identify them as the Trinity. That's important. But it's also important to identify them individually. So I was tempted to cover it as one, but we're going to cover them as three. So he distinguishes clearly between himself and the Father and the Spirit. Now, elsewhere... I don't remember if it's here, I don't think so. But Jesus tells us, no one has ever seen the Father. And then he also says that the Spirit is invisible. So he is the only manifestation, physical manifestation of God that they're interacting with. And so that's why many have gone on to create cults 
with this whole misconception of really who God is. And it covers the gamut. I mean, some worship only the Spirit, some leave the Spirit out, some say it's modalism, that it's one God but in three different forms. And so it's important to get this distinction right. Jesus wanted us to get it right, and so it's important that we do so. Many cults are in error over this. So now, I want to speak at length here and in the two chapters I referenced, uh, chapters 5 and 10, about this. So let me point you first to uh, 14, verse 10. Let me reread it. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? And so what this is telling us then is that they dwell within one another. Uh, a text that we read earlier in the worship service spoke about us dwelling in one another, not with one another, in one another. And so the degree to which we dwell in one another is a lesser degree than to the extent that the Father and the Son dwell in one another. Their union, their dwelling together is perfect. It is sinless. It is holy. Yet ours is flawed. Then he goes on to say, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. So see, the Father has the authority, and now he's saying the Father does the works. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't elsewhere it say that Jesus does all things through the power of the Father? And this is why I think studying the Trinity gets confusing, because we, we want it to be simpler than it is, and yet it's not. That's why studying the, the Trinity is, is uh, fruitful, because you just go deeper and deeper, you learn more and more, and you find out what the nuances are. What are the differences as you study it? Now, it was Tertullian in about 200 AD that first introduced this concept of one substance, three persons. He was a theologian living in Carthage, North Africa, and he was presenting this in Latin, and supposedly that was a more expressive language than Greek, and it kind of gave the concepts greater grasp by minds. I don't know that to be the case. That was a long time ago, but that's what I read. Now, Tertullian had some problems, so you can't read everything of his without uh, being very careful, but yet that's true of pretty much everybody that you read. Now, the Father has ultimate authority. He does the works. Now let's go to John 5. And there are several more aspects of God's work that come out in what Jesus had said to the religious leaders of the day back in John 5. And so first, in verse 22, the Father has committed judgment to the Son. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So this seems pretty distinctive. Jesus is definitely drawing a distinction here. Further on in verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And so see this self-sustaining, this self-identity that Jesus has, he speaks of as having been granted to him from the Father. And again, this gets really wild, and this is why some say Jesus is a created being because the Father gave him life. That's what this is saying, right? No, that's not what it's saying. Verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So Jesus seeks not his own will at all in the flesh. 
He only sought the Father's will. And that tells us then that the will emanates from the Father. It is the Father who has willed what it is that we experience, what it is that his son Jesus experienced while on this earth. Verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. He also mentioned this in our text in John 14. And so the works of Christ are manifest evidence that there is a Father God in heaven. Because why? Because no human can do what Jesus did. It's not in humans to be able to do what he did, to overcome the limitations of our physical world like he did. So it was only through divine power that that could be accomplished. Now let's go on to John 10. John 10, starting at verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Now you have to read that carefully. Let's not gloss this over. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life. This is saying that God the Father loves Jesus because he is sacrificing himself. Does that then mean that he wouldn't love the Son if he was not sacrificing himself? No, that doesn't logically follow. But what we know is that God the Father, in this text that Jesus speaks, God the Father has that much more love for his Son because of his self-sacrificial act. And see, that's the same love that we delve more deeply into when we exhibit that same self-sacrificial aspect in this world. God the Father loves that. In verse 28 of, of uh, chapter 10, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus grants eternal life just as the Father grants life. Now Jesus, by having life in himself, grants eternal life to those whom he chooses. And in verse 30, I and my Father are one. That's when they get really angry at him and they want to kill him. But see, he declares himself to be one. And so now we've got that one substance that Tertullian introduced. And yet, over, over again, Jesus is distinguishing himself from the Father and subsequently later we'll see from the Spirit. And so, we regard the Trinity largely as an issue of doctrine these days. And we all know what doctrine is, right? Doctrine is what fussy people talk about and pull dusty books off their shelves and try to give to you as if it's interesting. Isn't it? That's what doctrine is. It's like, yeah. Doctrine, we, it really was once, once well respected. And it was understood that to understand doctrine was to understand what life is all about. Now it's the exact opposite. Doctrine is now shunned amongst the Christians. I mean, if you try to talk doctrine, they don't want to hear it. It's so boring. And it's really so needless. All you need is love, right? Even in the church, all you need is love. Doctrine divides. I get this from Christians at my work. I try to talk to them about stuff, and it's like, you care about that? Just go save souls. That's what the Christian life is all about these days. But doctrine protects us. That scripture that I gave you from 2 Timothy 3.16, that very famous one, 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for the very first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine. So doctrine is important to God and it should be important to us. But I want to point something out to you. Philip didn't get it, right? And Jesus rebukes him. Three years Philip has been with Jesus and still he doesn't get it. So see, there's hope for us. The apostles didn't get it. If the apostles didn't get it, I think we should have some slack in getting it. But you can't say we ought not get it because that was in Jesus' rebuke of Philip. You ought to get it. So doctrine is for our good and he is emphasizing that in this 12 verse section. So see, Jesus expected his disciples to learn doctrine. He expects us all to learn doctrine. You can't tell me you don't have to know doctrine. God wants you to know doctrine. It's important for all of us, not just the apostles, not just the elders. They had difficulty doing so. Nothing much has changed. It's difficult for us as well at times. And yet last week I mentioned also Jim Elliott's catchphrase that he wanted to study to show himself approved unto God. And that's what we all should seek. We will profit. Doctrine is profitable. And so to the degree that you understand doctrine, you will enjoy life more. And frankly, to the degree that you don't understand doctrine, you might not be passing on to your children good Christian life principles. You have to know doctrine in order to pass that on. So when we come to the table, we thank God for the fact that he has given us his word, his doctrine, and that we benefit from it. So let's partake now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And in the Old Testament, several spoke of eating your word. And we see it again in the New Testament, eating your word. And we thank you, Lord, that that's what you intend for us to do. You intend for us to live on it. You intend for us to eat it such that we can sustain life with it. And we thank you, Father, for the beauty of it, for the wonder of it, and for the fact that it does separate us from the world that we live in. We thank you, Father, and we praise you for that separation. Please uh, have us to be holy and entirely set apart to do your will on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.